Lipstick Assassins, Goth Spiders and City State Political Musical Chairs. It's the third and final episode about Thebes titled Apex and Despair on the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi, and thanks for joining me. My name's Neil, and I'm the host and creator of the Ancient History Hound podcast. As a quick heads up, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Ancient Blogger, and then there's my ancientblogger.com website. More recently, I've joined TikTok to throw out yet more ancient history content. It's okay, though. There's absolutely no dancing. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the fate of Thebes and what happened in the 4th century. This follows two previous episodes on Thebes, which dealt with its foundation in early days, and then went on to the 5th century. It's my own sort of Theban trilogy. By the way, you don't have to have listened to the previous episodes, but I'm hoping if you haven't, you might fancy giving it a go. Before I get going, I just need to cover a few points relating to this episode, the previous one, and the next episode. In terms of the previous Thebes episode, Revenge and Rivalry, I stated that Athens was 30 miles from Thebes. Well, it's actually a bit further than that. Using Google Maps, it's a 37-mile walk. Well, that's about 60 kilometres, taking the shortest way you could get there. But those in antiquity may have taken a longer route. However, really, the important point is that the two were neighbours. Boeotia, the region Thebes was in, and Attica, the region Athens was in, bordered each other, and this informs a whole load of stuff going on. In reference to this episode, two books were very useful. Thebes by Paul Cartledge, which I'll put on the show notes, and Xenophon's Hellenica. This was written by Xenophon, Athenian who was born in the late 5th century and who lived quite an extraordinary life. He's most famous for his Anabasis, which covered his experience as a mercenary captain who had to march from deep inside Persian territory to the safety of the Black Sea. As a source, Xenophon is incredibly useful. He's contemporary for much of the period I'm covering, and his knowledge of the military is also very handy. However, Xenophon does come with one major caveat or drawback. He's incredibly biased against Thebes and Thebans. Though he was an Athenian, he ended up on very good terms with the Spartans, and there are a couple of instances where this becomes very obvious, and I'll flag them when I come across to them. This also reveals a flip side to having a contemporary source. They can position and interpret events according to their own prejudices and biases. So it's not always good to just completely sign off on a source because they were there at the time. In terms of dating, unless stated, all the dates you'll hear will be BCE or BC. Finally, after this episode, I'll be taking a short break. This podcast is all done by yours truly. And while I'm not asking you to play the world's smallest violin or lyre, it's quite a demanding hobby. When I started all those years ago, I didn't do so with a set of pre-recorded episodes, which would then allow me to always have one or two ready. Nope. When I finish this one, I'm researching and scripting the next one. Entire weekends and some evenings go by in a flash. So I'm going to give myself a bit of a rest, but I'll be back with an episode in the autumn, probably October. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll see all the updates. Oh, and if you can review this podcast or get the word out, I'll be really, really grateful. Okay, I'll begin then where the last episode ended. It was 404 and Athens had lost the Peloponnesian War. Corinth and Thebes wanted Athens raised, but Sparta, who was technically in charge, decided not to do so, and there was a good reason for this. In the 5th century, Thebes had been dragged out of the proverbial gutter by Sparta. Remember that Thebes had sided with the Persians when they had invaded. Sparta had seen Thebes as a very useful ally to have, 
The region around Thebes, as I mentioned, Boeotia bordered with Attica, which was where Athens was based. Therefore, a pro-Spartan Thebes could help the Spartans keep Athens in check. But Thebes had grown, and as so, it had moved away from being wholly reliant on Sparta and began setting its own agenda. Though they fought as allies in the Peloponnesian War, Thebes began doing its own thing and defied Sparta on occasions. So when the war was over and Athens was on its knees, Sparta found itself in the weird situation of actually needing Athens to act as a check on Thebes, a complete reversal of the situation that it had helped create. This is a classic, pun intended, city-state politics scenario. One minute the city-state you back is in fact your enemy and the one you put on the floor is now needed, but this time on your side. It's a sort of teen friendship politics minus the social media. After the Peloponnesian War, Sparta replaced the democracy in Athens with what's known as the Thirty. This was an oligarchic government, and they pretty much lived up to the worst fears anyone had about such a type of government. The Thirty terrorised Athens. If you're a wealthy or just in their way, prepare to be very dead or exiled very soon. However, hope wasn't lost. The anti-30 or pro-democracy movement wasn't dead in the water by any means, and Athens had a city-state nearby which not only allowed the pro-democracy rebels in, but helped support them. You guessed it, it was Thebes. This might seem odd, after all, why was Thebes aiding these Athenians? Thebes was one of the city-states which had wanted Athens levelled less than a year before. That's quite a U-turn. In his book Thebes, Professor Cartledge makes two suggestions to help answer this. The first is that there had always been a pro-democratic vibe in both Thebes and Boeotia. This had manifested itself in a number of events in the 5th century, some of which I covered in the previous episode. Secondly, and probably more importantly, doing this would really sock it to Sparta. It must have been obvious to Thebes that the only reason Sparta didn't want to level Athens was because they were worried that Thebes would fill the space. What would really rub it in would be Thebes to ally with Athens and use this against Sparta. A main character involved in this is the Athenian Thrasybulus. He'd been active in Thebes, and in 403 he led a force of around 70 others to take a fort at Phyle. This was on the border with Athens and Thebes. This was a clear statement and challenge to the 30 back at Athens, who then attempted to take the fort back but failed. A series of events followed, which I won't go into as they are more about Sparta and Athens than Thebes, but the outcome was that the 30 were ousted and Sparta had to cede Athens back to its democracy. Sparta was furious and blamed Thebes in part for its loss to Athens, specifically because Thebes had failed to back it when asked. Xenophon even has the Spartans accusing Thebes of convincing Corinth not to back Sparta in this, and therefore Corinth not getting involved as well. This might be true, but it's more likely Xenophon being, well, as you'll find out and see, anti-Theban. If there's a chance that Thebes are to blame for something, you can guarantee he'll find a way. In reality, both Thebes and Sparta were itching for a fight, but neither wanted to throw the first punch. It's one of those situations where two individuals sort of circle each other, goading the other one to be the first to throw the punch. And there's a rationale here. Much like the two individuals, neither Sparta or Thebes wanted to be seen as the aggressor. This resonates even today, and there's much political posturing to be seen as the aggrieved before you take any kind of military action. It was also important from being seen as not breaking any oaths or truces. But Thebes was a dab hand at political chicanery and eventually manufactured a situation in nearby Phocis, which is a region to the west, which drew the Spartans in so they could finally start what was known as the Corinthian War. But before that, I just want to refer to an incident between Sparta and Thebes, which had ramifications further down the line. 
In 396, the Spartan king Agesilaus had made an expedition to Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, against the Persians. The king wanted as much pomp and ceremony about all as he could muster, and what better way to do so than launch the expedition from Orlis, the same place where Agamemnon had sailed to Troy from. This sounds like a great idea, but the problem was Orlis was in Boeotia, the region Thebes controlled, and the Thebans prevented this from happening. Agesilaus, denied his big moment, would not forget this. In 395, the Corinthian War began. It was Sparta and a few allies versus Thebes, Athens, Argus and Corinth. One notable non-Greek player in all of this was the Persian king, who supported those opposed to Sparta. And this was because he had King Agesilaus roaming around his part of the world. So the Persian king thought, what better way to get the Spartans to return home than sow a bit of discontent there and aid their enemies? Sparta wasn't naive to the weakness Thebes had. Though it was the leading city of Boeotia, it didn't have the sort of hold which made this permanent. An early victory for Sparta wasn't made with any spear thrust or bloodshed. It was made through getting a city back on its side, and this city was Orchomenos. It defected to Sparta, and this caused all sorts of problems, and in a way just revealed a bit of a rift that the two cities had. Orchomenos and Thebes had always had a bit of a rivalry, but this was quite a distinct action, and it would have consequences. In 394, Thebes met Sparta at Nemea. Sparta and allies fielded approximately 18,000 men, whilst Thebes and co. put in 24,000. The outcome of the battle was a Spartan victory, and worse news was to come for Thebes. The Spartan king Agesilaus had returned from his expedition against the Persians. The Persian king's tactic of making things difficult for Sparta back home had worked, and Agesilaus had marched his troops across the Hellespont and back through Greece. His army crossed into Boeotian territory from the north, coming through the pass at Thermopylae. In 394, Agesilaus put his men onto the field at Coronea. His experienced troops won the day, but not without a scare, as Thebes almost got hold of Agesilaus's baggage train. That's not a euphemism, by the way. Agesilaus also suffered an injury, which might have made his decision to leave things and return to Sparta that bit easier. His men had been campaigning, and this was an army on the way back, and so Sparta didn't press with the advantage they had. It's worth noting that due to the nature of warfare at this time, winning a battle didn't always mean the situation was resolved in your favour. It might do, but it didn't automatically follow that defeating an army in the field meant everything was solved. Sparta was running a healthy two-for-nothing score against Thebes, but it wouldn't be on the battlefield where they'd do the most damage, as you'll shortly hear. In 387, the king's peace happened. By this point, stalemate had been reached, and the Greek city-states realised that a break from intermittent fighting might be a good idea. It was called the King's Peace after the Persian king Artaxerxes. And if you're wondering why, well, remember that it was the Persians who'd helped fund those city-states from fighting Sparta during the Corinthian War. Persia might not be able to offer troops, but it could offer huge amounts of coin. By this time, Persia was now backing Sparta. And the peace involved a number of elements to it, which I won't go into. But in short, the Greek city-states agreed to abide by it, as each had more to lose than gain. And there was also the concern that Persia might back the side you weren't on, and would bring all that financial resource against you. For King Agesilaus, it allowed an opportunity for some much-needed payback on Thebes. One of the central elements to the peace was that everyone got out of everyone else's business, and that no city could govern another. This aspect was incompatible with what's known as and referred to as the Boeotian League or Boeotian Confederation, sometimes even called the Boeotian Federation. 
In short, it was an alliance of cities and towns in Boeotia which supplied troops and resources. I've mentioned this in the previous episode, and there's a fair amount of debate as to how it functioned and what the constitution was. But what was key, though, was that Thebes had been the most influential voice. And so, in a way, the Boeotian League was a sort of mini-Theban empire, and Thebes could draw upon it to support its own interests. With each town and city deciding its own affairs, the Boeotian League ceased to exist. Thebes was furious. In one fell swoop, it had been deprived of a large resource base. It also suffered a huge blow to its pride. The Boeotian League had been something Thebes had been working on since the previous century. But now Thebes was just a city-state, a large one, but not one which could mobilise and set policy across almost an entire region. Given that everyone else had agreed to the terms, there was nothing much Thebes could do. King Agassiz must have relished this. So Thebes was back to square one, but at least it had something. At least it was in charge of its own affairs, right? Ah, well, it, it gets worse. In 382, there was a political split in Thebes between two individuals, Leontiades and Ismenias. Both loathed the other. And had Leontiades not decided to take things further, this might have gone down as a political spat, which was, I suppose, the normal sort of thing back then. What Leontiades did was to invite Sparta in, literally. Through a ruse, Leontiades snuck a Spartan force into the Theban Acropolis, the Cadmia, and casually announced it at a meeting he attended. Ismenius was arrested and eventually executed. Any supporters he had fled for their lives. This event wasn't that unusual in Greece, exceptional at Thebes perhaps, but political rivalries and tensions made strong walls very porous. As mentioned in the previous Thebes episode, why waste energy on a siege when a few words and some well-placed coin might be far more efficient and get the job done? Why send men up ladders only to be hurled down when a party in a city might ally with you? Trojan horses were very time-consuming after all. The response to the Spartan takeover at Thebes was almost immediate and started in Athens. Only a few decades before Athenian exiles had plotted how to retake Athens from inside Thebes, and now it is a reverse. But before I go further, here's a word from the excellent Casting Through Ancient Greece podcast. In his final days, Alexander the Great's generals asked him who should succeed him. Alexander's answer, the strongest. Taken literally, this would see the close of the classical Greek age, an age thousands of years in the making. Join me, Mark Selleck, as I go back to retell the story of ancient Greece in my series Casting Through Ancient Greece. We will cast our way back to its beginnings, all the way through to the spread of its culture throughout the known world, thanks to Alexander and his generals. You can listen and subscribe to the series at www.castingthroughancientgreece.com or you can listen on your favourite podcasting platform. Don't forget to follow the series over on Twitter at Casting Greece or on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece. I look forward to seeing you there. Just to recap then. We have Thebes, which is being controlled by Sparta and the Theban exiles based in Athens. Xenophon's account of what occurred next begins with a secretary of the Spartan officers, a man called Philidas, who visited Athens and set the ball rolling. On a visit there, he met an exile called Melon. Yeah, I, I know, but you work with what you've got. Along with other exiles, he began to plot a way they could retake Thebes, a sort of coup d'etat, or as it involved Melon, a cantaloupe d'etat. I'm just going to pause after that one. Eventually the plan took shape. Melon and six other exiles would travel back to Thebes and assassinate the Spartan officers and Leontiades. 
This involved disguising themselves as labourers to avoid being detected by guards at the gate so they could infiltrate the city, and after successfully doing so, they met at a house and waited. Luckily for them, there was a festival at the time in honour of Aphrodite. This provided a great opportunity to move around the city undetected and also gave access to potential targets. When the Athenian heroes Harmodius and Aristogiton had assassinated the tyrant Hippias, they'd done so during a festival. But this was different. The exiles weren't taking on an unarmed individual. They were going to kill Spartan officers. But here's where having Philodas on the inside was such an important thing. As Philodas was the secretary for the Spartan officers, it was he who was in charge of the entertainment for the evening. He arranged for the Spartan officers to have a night of pleasure, the best wine you could get, and the best Theban women. Philodas ensured that the wine flowed freely that evening, at least early on. And when the Spartans asked for the women to be brought in, he dismissed the servants. After all, these were noble Theban women who wore veils, though perhaps to the trained or sober eye, they seemed a bit different somehow. Each was sat next to her allotted Spartan. When the Spartans reached for their veils and raised them, the surprise was revealed. It wasn't a Theban woman, but an exile dressed as one, even down to the makeup. That's commitment for you. The exiles each struck their allotted Spartan with a dagger. The officers were now dead. The exiles still had their work cut out. Leontiades wasn't as easy to trick and seems to have been prepared for what was about to happen, but he eventually fell. The prisons were opened and the exiles armed the locals. The Spartan force there realised their position was hopeless and surrendered on the promise that they could leave. Some were killed, but most left Thebes, which was now back in the hands of the Thebans. In 379, Thebes was back on its feet and the next decade was to see a huge reversal in its fortunes. But to start with, it needed to secure its position. Though it had thrown out the Spartans, Thebes wasn't as stable as it needed to be and expected a Spartan response. What it needed was Athens as an ally, but Athens didn't seem happy with what Thebes had done. And you might be wondering why. After all, hadn't Athens supported and welcomed the Theban exiles? And also, what about the fact that this prevented Sparta from having a foothold next door to it? We know that Athens wasn't happy with the outcome, because it even exiled one general and executed another who'd helped the Thebans. What Athens had at this point was stability. It was bound to a peace which it knew Sparta wasn't about to break, and perhaps realised that Sparta offered a more conventional enemy to deal with. The outlier, the loose cannon, was Thebes, and here it was doing its own thing again. What Thebes needed was for Athens to clash with Sparta and thus side with Thebes, except neither Sparta or Athens had much appetite for this. That is, until a Spartan named Sphodrias decided to march on the Piraeus at Athens with a force of men. He never made it, instead plundered some farms. Athens was outraged and hoped that Sparta would punish Sphodrias for acting this way. Due to internal politics and affection, this didn't happen. Thebes now had Athens on its side. Xenophon managed to blame the Thebans for all of this by writing that they had bribed Sphodrias into attacking Athens to draw them into the war. It's possible... But it's also possible Xenophon is just doing his the Thebans are under your bed type thing. Two major events now took place. The first was that Thebes adopted a form of democracy. The Boeotian League, now back in operation, also had this democratic cure adapted to it. Exactly how the Theban democracy operated isn't clear. But what's expected is that for the first time the poorest classes could vote and hold the lower political offices. This was huge for Thebes but perhaps the success of democracy at Athens had acted as a sort of shop window. It wasn't perfect, 
but after the fiasco with Leontiades, perhaps it was just a better option. The second thing to occur was the establishment of the Sacred Band. This was a unit of 300 men, or more specifically, 150 pairs of male lovers, who formed an elite infantry unit. As Davidson comments in his book Greeks and Greek Love, the idea of a unit composed in this way may have already existed, namely at Ellis. However, as Davidson again points out, the uniqueness was that these relationships cut across the social strata. A couple might be from different sections or classes of society, and as such the sacred band was representative not of a class, but of male Theban society as a whole. The sacred band were barracked in the Cadmia, the Theban Acropolis, and they were drilled and trained to become an elite unit. Athens was presumably happy to see Thebes adopt a political structure close to its own, and in 378 the Second Athenian Alliance was formed with Thebes as a member. Once again, Sparta was the big concern, and the game of musical political chairs was again in play. The early 370s is also where two individuals came into prominence at Thebes. The names were Epaminondas and Pelopidas. Both were generals and therefore politicians. In his parallel lives, Plutarch wrote how Pelopidas was central in both the plot to retake Thebes from the Spartans and a development with the sacred band that will come to shortly. Plutarch wrote in the 1st century CE, or AD, so 400 years or so after all of this, but he was from Boeotia. The difficulty is that we don't know how much of his accounts of Pelopidas are just a good tale and how much is correct. A source which contradicts Pelopidas' involvement with the retaking of Thebes is Xenophon, but here we have a problem. Taken in isolation, it would be tempting to argue that Xenophon didn't mention Pelopidas, that he simply wasn't involved. But Xenophon, as I mentioned earlier, was no fan of Thebes, and when Thebes was successful, Xenophon either ignored the event or played it down. I'll come to a great example of this later on, where his failure to name either Pelopidas or Epaminondas is just downright bizarre. The Spartan response to this was to lead a campaign into Boeotia. You've probably guessed that would be the case, and it's why Thebes had wanted that alliance with Athens so badly. The following two years saw Sparta make raids into Boeotia, but without landing a definitive blow. Xenophon did write that in one instance the Thebans fought like men who'd been drinking in midday, and his frustration mirrored the general stagnant atmosphere. Much was said, but little done. When Sparta thought about launching an invasion by sending ships across the Corinthian Gulf, laden with troops, Athens made naval raids in the south, and so negated this possibility. In 375, Thebes went on the offensive, though not against the Spartans, but against another Boeotian city. Orchomenus had been that place which had sided with Sparta. Pelopidas heard that the garrison there had left for a short time, so he took a force with him to retake the city in its absence. The garrison had left, but there was still a force in the city, so Pelopidas couldn't do anything. But on the journey back home, he bumped into a Spartan force. So began the Battle of Tegira. It was a Theban victory, but not just any. Here, a Spartan force was definitively beaten by a smaller one, and key to it was the Sacred Band. According to Plutarch, the sacred band had initially served within the ranks in pairs, but at Tegira had fought as one unit and it had fought incredibly well, so Pelopidas kept it that way, and now the sacred band was a distinct unit within the line. Xenophon's account is, well, missing. Xenophon doesn't mention it at all, which is a bit of a surprise, but it was a real statement of probably how important it was to Thebes and what advantage Thebes got from it that Xenophon decided that he wasn't even going to mention it. 375 also saw a renewal of the king's peace being offered around. 
Sparta and Athens were both happy with this, but Thebes wasn't. The last time it had been forced to agree with it, the result had been losing the Boeotian League. Nah, fool me twice and all of that. Instead, it just provoked Thebes into raising Plataea again, which presumably being in the process of being rebuilt. And it dismantled the fortifications of Thespae, which was in Boeotia and being used by Sparta as a staging post for operations when it raided there. In 371, another truce was attempted. According to Cartledge, this time Epaminondas attended and spoke on behalf of Thebes and therefore Boeotia. Not only did he state that he would only agree on behalf of the Boeotian League, not just Thebes, he also turned the tactic on King Agasileos. Why could Sparta agree on behalf of all the towns it controlled, but not Thebes? The quarrelling and bickering, the raiding and the counter-raiding. The fallout led to another incursion by a Spartan force into Boeotia, which has gone down in history. King Cleombrotus was the younger brother of Agasileos, and it's worth mentioning that Agasileos by this time was in his senior years by modern standards. It was Cleombrotus who had punished the Thebans and once again free the Boeotian cities and towns from its oppression. Well, that's what they thought. Cleombrotus did the standard thing of raiding Boeotia and trying to invite the Thebans out. And true to form, they eventually came out, and the two sides met in 371 at Leuctra. The Spartan force numbered around 10,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry. The Thebans had between six and 7,000 infantry and 1,500 cavalry. Both Pelopidas and Epaminondas were present, and prior to the battle, Plutarch, in his Parallel Lives, wrote of a dream Pelopidas had. In the dream, the daughters of Scydacus appeared to him. These were women who had been killed by Spartans, and the tombs were nearby. Their father, Scydacus, had also killed himself after his daughter's being violated, and he appeared demanding that a virgin with auburn hair be sacrificed to them as an offering. The next day, Pelopidas mentioned the dream, and this caused no small amount of consternation amongst the officers. Human sacrifice had occurred in Greece, and it lingered in their myths. Take the example of Iphigenia, sacrificed by her father Agamemnon at the outset of the Trojan War, and Polyxena sacrificed at the end of it. By the way, I did a whole episode on human sacrifice in antiquity. Trust me, there's much more of it in Greece and Rome than you might expect. In any case, whilst Pelopidas wondered what to do, a fully broke from a group of horses nearby and rang into the camp. The horse had an auburn mane, and so fulfilled the requirements of the dream. Animals replacing the human in the context of sacrifice isn't unusual. In fact, one version of the Virginia myth has it that she was replaced by a stag at the last moment, and it exists elsewhere, for example, Isaac in the Old Testament. Anyway, I talk all about all of that kind of stuff in the human sacrifice episode, but back to Lutra. The exact details of what happened aren't wholly clear, but it seems that Epaminondas used a tactic which may have been used before, where the Theban line advanced in an oblique fashion, rather than straight on. The Theban line was also set much deeper, and the tactic worked. Sparta was beaten, and King Cleombrotus fell in the fighting. The last Spartan king to die prior to this had been Leonidas at Thermopylae over a century before. Xenophon's account of the battle is as you might now expect. He neglected to mention either Pelopidas or Epaminondas. He did mention that Thebes won partially due to luck, and that King Cleombrotus had been drinking prior to the battle. Xenophon may have been lacking in how the battle went, but he didn't shirk from describing how the loss was felt back at Sparta. Families who heard that a relative had died went about in a cheery manner. 
whereas those whose relatives had survived appeared gloomy or just stayed indoors. It's fair to say that the defeat of Sparta at Leuctra was a pivotal moment. The reputation of Sparta had a clear crack running through it. The defeat was most horribly realised in the loss of the Spartiates, the male citizens. These were the troops bred and trained for war, and they were always a limited resource. Sparta placed tight controls over who could be a Spartan citizen, and as such it never fielded that many, but used others such as Helots or Porioikoi in its army as padding. Take the famous Battle of Plataea in 479. Sparta sent 50,000 troops, but only 5,000 of these were Spartians. In the 5th century, this small group had been made smaller still. There was the effect of war, and there was also marriage. Spartiates married at around 30 years of age, so some never made it to that point. There was also the problem of inheriting land, which was one qualification of being a Spartian. Spartans' own customs and laws simply facilitated any external pressure to reduce this group. At Leuctra, it lost 400 Spartiates. This was a huge number for Sparta to lose. Purely within the context of demographics, it was a bit of a death now. Spartiates were now well past the help of adverts where if you adopt one, you get to name it and receive updates along with a fuffy toy. They were at extinction level. In the previous episode, I ended by mentioning that Thebes would be involved in the effective end of two major powers. Sparta was one of these, and from then on, it would be largely mythologised and remembered. Following the battle, Thebes was elated, as you'd expect. Athens less so, and it refused to receive those breaking the news. By this time, I suspect you are familiar with why Athens felt this way. With one of the big three gone, there was just two left. In 369, Thebes engaged with that seemingly modern convention, making the mighty fall. Both Epaminondas and Pelopidas were brought to trial on technicalities of acting past their term limits. They survived, but it's a good reminder of how city politics ensure that the higher you flew, the further you could crash down from. Worse was to come for Sparta. Following the defeat, Epaminondas led the invasion of Laconia. In fact, there were four invasions or expeditions into the southern Peloponnese, either against Sparta or its interests in the 360s. Sparta itself was never sacked or directly attacked, possibly because Thebes didn't need to. Though Thebes and Sparta had been at each other's throats, they shared a weakness which Sparta had certainly prodded. Their hold or hegemony over neighbouring towns and cities had been a major factor in their rise. As mentioned, Thebes had the Boeotian League which Sparta had managed to deconstruct using the king's peace. But Sparta had this issue as well. Epaminondas liberated Messenia, a vital region which Sparta had sourced men and resources from. He even founded a city called Messene, encased with strong walls, which ensured that Sparta was permanently dislocated from this part of Greece. This wasn't the only city he founded. The region of Arcadia sat just above Sparta, and it was here that Epaminondas founded Megopolis. This looked to revitalise the Arcadians into becoming a power, and one in the southern Peloponnese which would invariably look kindly towards Thebes. This was a sound strategic notion. Thebes could project its influence into the southern Peloponnese from what was built as an Arcadian League. But as with anything, there were potential drawbacks, and the outcome of this was to have grave consequences within a few years, as you'll hear. Other situations started at this point were to have equally as grave outcomes, but those to be experienced at a much later date. In 368, Thebes received a hostage in the form of a 14-year-old youth from a royal family. This type of arrangement wasn't unusual. It was a good way of ensuring terms between states. And in this instance, the youth wasn't that important. 
If he was going to end up on the throne, two of his older brothers would need to die, and that was none too probable. For three years, the youth soaked up Thebes and spent much time with both Epaminondas and Pelopidas. He learnt how the city had overtaken Athens and Sparta to become the preeminent force in Greece. From what we know, he enjoyed his time there, living in luxury. The youth returned to his homeland with the sort of schooling money couldn't buy. Along with the military reforms, he now had an insight into how Greek politics worked. And this was particularly important. Those non-too-probable events happened, and in 360, that youth succeeded to the throne. Oh, and his name was Philip, and his home was Macedonia. In case that doesn't ring a bell, he was the dad-to-be of Alexander the Great. The young king had learned plenty from his time in Thebes, and much is given to how he reformed the Macedonian army from what he'd seen there. Yet there was also the finer points of Greek city-state politics. Macedonia was viewed as an outlier state, a place not particularly tuned in to the political game. What Philip now knew was the basics of the rules, and this led much later to his return to Thebes. Before we meet King Philip again, three events are worth noting. The first is the deaths of Pelopidas and Epaminondas. Pelopidas died fighting whilst on campaign in Thessaly. Epaminondas died in Arcadia. His support for the Arcadian League, that pro-Theban political setup in the southern Peloponnese, started to falter. In 362 it was challenged, and so Epaminondas led a force to restore the balance. Athens by this point had allied with Sparta, and formed a coalition of much smaller city-states. The battle was inconclusive, and both sides claimed victory. However, Thebes lost Epaminondas, someone who just couldn't be replaced. And it's also the last action recorded by Xenophon. It's here that his account tails off. Now, I know I've bashed Xenophon a bit, but his accounts are vital. He had an incredible life from growing up in Athens and knowing Socrates to seeing Athens fall and then fighting overseas. If you're composing a fantasy historical dinner guest list, always keep him in mind. Just leave any mention of Thebes off the menu. The last of the three things to cover in the 360s were the sacking of Orchomenos. In 364, it fell. After the Theban victory at Leuctra, anyone living in Orchomenos must have been checking what their insurance covered. And true to form, Thebes did the thing it loved doing, sacking another city. The 350s were dominated by the Sacred War. It got its name from the involvement of Delphi, not as a warring entity, but as a place fought over, occupied and contested. It was the Third Sacred War, which gives you an idea about the tensions here. Thebes faced off against Phocis, a region in the west, and a series of battles were fought. More important, perhaps, than any of this, and certainly in the long run, was that the Third Sacred War opened a door for Philip, King of Macedon, and he duly trod over the threshold. Exactly how cute Philip was to all of this isn't clear, but I said earlier he'd had a perfect schooling for three years in the maelstrom that was Greek city-state politics. In the meantime, Philip had extended Macedonian power in Thessaly, a region to the north of Boeotia, and was more than able to get stuck in further south. Thebes had indirectly and somewhat directly aided Philip, and in 346 Thebes went all in and requested Philip send troops to help resist Phocis, who was taking Boeotian territory at will. Philip happily obliged and restored Boeotia back to Thebes, as well as ending the war. And with that, the game of musical chairs began once more. Athens had been opposing Philip for some time. Athens sent the famous orator Demosthenes to Thebes to convince them to ally against him. That Demosthenes was able to achieve this has been put down to his skills in persuasion, but consider the situation Thebes was in. The heyday of Epaminondas and Pelopidas was decades past. 
In the recent sacred war, there'd been a big problem. Thebes hadn't been able to exert the kind of military influence it had previously done and actually needed another state to come in and help it out. Perhaps, just perhaps, that glory it had achieved wasn't a step leading to more. It was a step to a plateau. In short, Thebes wasn't going to achieve as much as it thought it could, and recent events had made that very obvious. In the meantime, a newcomer in the form of Philip had come upon the stage, and he was a force which Thebes couldn't check on its own. As Carlage also points out, Philip was a king, and both Thebes and Athens were democracies, and Philip was no fan of this type of government. The horrifying prospect of a king ruling Thebes and Athens must have been sensed. Athens and Thebes allied against Philip. In 338, Philip led as forced south to Chaeronea in Boeotia. Numerically, the two sides weren't all that different. Philip fielded around 32,000 men, and Athens, Thebes, and her allies numbered around 35,000. The big difference, though, was quality. Philip had seasoned his army in campaign after campaign, but an experienced soldier at this time was worth dozens of inexperienced ones. If you study this period, you may have come across accounts where one side just gives way, or even breaks on the first charge. This would have occurred because much of the rank fighting meant that one or two individuals deciding they were done would have a domino effect, leading to the entire wing or, or line breaking and fleeing. An experienced soldier was less likely to break on first contact or flee when he saw the enemy bearing down. He would have known that first explosion of noise in the whirl of combat. It would have scared him, but he would have known that his best chance of survival was to stand firm. Another individual made his debut at Caronia. Commanding the cavalry was a son of Philip, an 18-year-old called Alexander. He'd be back at Thebes a few years later on, much to its ruin. At Caronia, Philip won with Alexander leading the cavalry. The sacred band was slain to a man, and a monument of a line was placed where they fell. This has been reconstructed in modern times. After the defeat, Thebes had a Macedonian garrison placed in Academia, which must have been reminiscent of when Sparta had done the same. The democracy was replaced with an oligarchy of sorts. You might think that was it, but of course it wasn't. Philip was assassinated in 336, and it wasn't the case that Alexander simply stepped in. The realities of court politics meant that rivals had to go missing and claims had to be backed up. But we know that Alexander succeeded to the throne, or we know now. What this must have done is give Thebes a none too silly suggestion throwing off the Macedonian yoke and being free once more. Now at the time this wasn't an obvious mistake to make. Political reigns and powers waxed and waned. It was perfectly reasonable to assume that Macedon would now fall to infighting and collapse under its own weight. Thebes moved quickly. According to Arian, the head of the Macedonian garrison was assassinated and the exiles returned to the city. The city rebelled and rumours were spread that Alexander had died whilst putting out one of the fires which had cropped up just after he had taken to the throne. But Alexander was very, very not dead, and at a fortress in Pelium in Macedonia. And he heard that Thebes had rebelled. In 13 days, he marched his army approximately 500 kilometres, that's 310 miles, and brought it up to just outside Thebes. Pausanias, a writer of the 2nd century CE or AD, wrote that when Alexander began his march, the spiders outside the sanctuary of Demeter spun black webs. Arian depicted Alexander as almost desperate to give Thebes an out, which aligns to his overall report of what happened next as being as little to do with Alexander as possible. This is because what happened next sent shockwaves across Greece. 
Alexander defeated the token force Thebes was able to muster and then sacked the city before raising it to the ground. Men, women and children were either killed or taken as slaves. Arian tried to assign all the really bad stuff, not to Alexander and his men, but to the age-old enemies of Thebes, other cities in Boeotia and just anywhere else in Greece that had joined with Alexander. Those famous walls of Thebes, legends of which predate those of Troy, were pulled down. Temples were left, and one house also was left, and this was the house that allegedly had belonged to Pindar. After all, it was Pindar who had celebrated victory and achievement, something which resonated with Alexander. There are a lot of ironies to indulge with here. The first force marching on Thebes from the north had been the Persians which it had supported, yet was a Greek army marching from a similar direction which ended it. Thebes had raised Plataea twice and done similar to Orchomenos and tried to do the same to Athens. In drama, Thebes was the place of civil strife which had a calamitous end. Think of the House of Oedipus. Thebes, the location for so much tragic myth, had realised it in the most realistic sense. Thebes was rebuilt and reoccupied later, but it wasn't ever the same Thebes. It was just a bad tribute band. And so we come to the end of Thebes, and the end of this episode, and the end of the Theban Trilogy, or rather, my Theban Trilogy. I hope you've enjoyed it, and as ever, if you want to come and say hi, I'm on social media, Ancient Blogger, go to my website, ancientblogger.com, and I'll speak to you again in the autumn. Until then, keep safe, and stay well.